are starting a series today called The Power of One. There's information on the inside cover of the Revival Times, page three, um, and I'll be kicking off this series with Plugged Into the Power on this Resurrection Sunday. Now, how many of you are feeling resurrected after three days off? <laughs> Some of you needed it, probably been working too hard, and you're looking forward to uh, Bank Holiday Monday before heading back to work, and it's been a great time. Many of you all know Chris Shimon, who preaches here regularly at the 2.30. We were at his wedding yesterday. It was a fantastic time celebrating with him, praise God, and we're looking forward to introducing Mr. and Mrs. Shimon to you when they come back. Um, I want to start out today's message by giving us a contrast, something to think about when, it's, when there's a call on our lives to get plugged into the power, and what does that mean? What does it mean to live in the power of God? Two passages about one guy called Paul. Many of us will know him from the scriptures, and I'm reading from Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he had found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now reading to you from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 5. And I, this is Paul again speaking, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided... And in the New King James, it says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In these two passages, we see the contrast of a man that we know as Paul. The first passage, a man of passion, a man of strength, a man of authority, a man of zeal, running around the countryside, grabbing Christians with hatred in his heart, seeking to take them back to Jerusalem. And people were afraid of him. People were scared out of their wits of this man who was trying to destroy the Christian faith. He was a very powerful guy. He had the authority of the chief priests, and he also had the weight of his education as a Pharisee, the weight of his walk as a religious man in Judaism to back him up so that when people heard Paul is coming, they were afraid. Remember that the Paul that we're talking about at this point was the same Paul who had watched when Stephen was being martyred, the very first martyr. A powerful man. A man that you would be afraid of. At Chris's wedding, you all know his military background was amazing, was having a few moments to talk with the military men that were there. And, you know, at one point, I was joking around um, and I made a mistake and said one of them was Scottish when he was Irish. And he looked at me, and I looked at him. I said, don't kill me. I want to wake up tomorrow morning. <laughs> because I recognized that these guys had trained and equipped themselves to the highest standard, and powerful they indeed are. Same type of power that Paul had in this situation. But in the very next situation, we have a different type of a Paul, a Paul who's saying, you know what, I've thought about life, and I've had a revelation, and I'm not coming to you in my power, I'm not coming to you in my authority and strength so as to destroy you, but I'm coming with simple power, the power that comes from the cross, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and I want you to see his power, not my power. 
It's quite a difference then. There's something for us to consider because I want to ask you a question this afternoon. What would your life look like if you were living in God's power, not your own power? You might ask, what am I talking about? Am I talking about strength? Am I talking about the fact that you've spent many hours and weeks and years training yourself physically in the gym, on the running track, whatever sphere of sports you might be involved in? Am I talking about that? Am I talking about the power that's being gained as you uh, equip yourself intellectually, whether you're at university or through much reading, or maybe the power that you've gained in the status in your company where you've been promoted and promoted and now you've hit a certain point and people are recognizing you as a person of skill in your area um, of gifting? Am I talking about a power that comes through relationship? You're one of those strong characters that when you speak with people, they just say yes because they don't know how to say no to you. Is that the kind of power that I'm talking about? No. I'm not talking about any kind of a power that is a function of status or training, so to speak, within the realms of the known world, but a different kind of a power. You know, there was a guy who hadn't anything in his pockets. If he reached into his wallet and pulled out his wallet and tried to count out the coins, there would be no 50 note or 20 note or even 10 or even 5. There might be pound coins and pennies. He didn't have the weighty substance of material wealth. But when someone looked up to him in need, someone whose body was twisted and whose legs were twisted in such a way that he could not stand up and could not walk, this man said to him, I've got no money, but what I've got, I've give, I'll give it to you. And calls him to stand up, and he stands up. As he reaches down and grabs hold of his hand, suddenly this man's legs receive strength. They straighten up, and he's able to dance around and leap around. A guy who'd been like that for 40 years, everybody knew who he was. And a guy who had nothing in his pockets. His name's Peter, a fisherman. How many of you got stuff in your pockets today? Now, I've taken my wallet out of my pocket because one of the church board guys always says, you need to look sleek on the platform, no bulges and stuff. But even if I took my wallet out of my pocket, <laughs> I wouldn't find anything in there. Maybe plastic. But all of us know what it's like to face different challenges when there's not much financial provision in your life. And you might say, well, you know, one day when I get a bit of money together, then I'm going to be a person of influence and power. I'll be able to flash the money around. I'll be able to show people that I'm worth a position in their life because I'll be the one bankrolling the dinners. I'll be the one bankrolling the holidays. I'll be the one celebrating all of the time with parties and these kinds of things. That's sometimes the aspiration of man, but it's not the power of God. I know of another man who was sitting... At his place of work, taking pieces of cloth, layering them on one another, stitching them together to make simple tents, simple homesteads where people could lay their head at night. But you see, this guy, was he sweating away, sewing these pieces of cloth together, he's sweating. They're taking cloth after cloth, he's just wiping his head down, sun beating down, starts casting those cloths aside, and the people take those cloths, and they lay them on the sick. And people start to get healed. Now that guy's called Paul, the same guy we're reading about here today. Some people would think, when I've got a house... I'll be a man of substance, a woman of substance. And in London, many people have aspirations of purchasing their own property as hard as it is getting these days to do so. Because then I will have my castle, then I'll have my security, then I'll have the base from which I'll be able to operate. And yet Paul here is making tents. Tents are mobile homes. They're not substantial. They're not significant. They're not bases where you'd invite your friends to come and hang out. 
But you see, it's in that that the power of God was being manifest through Paul's life. Well, there's another guy. This guy's been assigned to be a waiter. He's been told, you know what, you need to bring food and, and drink to the people at the tables. You need to make sure that they are all organized. There's no disorderliness. There's no one pushing each other aside for the food. Everyone gets their first share. And this guy, this guy, I mean, the other guys were seeing their shadow heal people and um, cloths taken from their body to heal people. But this guy, this guy who waited tables, how many waiters have we got here? How many people have we got struggling with those double shifts with the rude customers, with the people who don't give you tips, and, but you're struggling to make a living? Now this guy, Philip, he gets transported around in the Holy Spirit, finds himself one place, finds himself in another place. See, he was plugged into a different kind of a power. He was experiencing a practical life like every single one of us does, not in the sphere and realm that we would aspire as powerful. He was living humbly. They were all living humbly, and yet they were experiencing a radical power from God in their life. You might say, well, Philip, Paul, Peter, you know, why are you talking about peas all the time? Um, they sound a little bit too high, a little bit too lofty. Maybe you can relate to Ananias. Little Ananias is a, a guy who is scared out of his wits. He's scared out of his wits for two reasons. One is God shows up in his room when he's praying. I mean, that would be scary enough as it is. But then the God who shows up in his room says, I want you to go find that guy, Saul. He's now thinking, do I fear God or do I fear the guy that's going to kill me? Maybe we can relate to that guy more. I don't know how many of you walk around in a daily basis afraid, worried, worried what people think about you, worried what's going to happen, is someone going to run you over, is someone going to rob you, is someone going to rip you off, is someone going to abuse you, is someone going to take advantage of your goodness, Ananias was in that place, but he was obedient to the call of God to go and find Saul, and as he finds Saul, I'm sure he's trembling. I'm sure he's freaking out. And he's like, Brother Saul, please don't kill me. The Lord Jesus, who uh, was in that dream, Jesus, I hope that was you, Jesus, but not have been somebody else. He sent me to pray for you. He sent me to pray for you. And Ananias, the guy who through a simple prayer lays hands on this guy, Paul, sees Paul his eyes open, sees Paul, the Spirit of God, rest upon him, sees Paul stand up, a man who'd previously gone to kill Christians, now coming out and preaching for the Christians. See, a simple, scared, afraid dude who God showed up in his prayer room, and he was obedient to go out and do something about it. Through him, the power of God is released, and people's lives, our lives, are still being touched by the message that Paul brought. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you think to yourself, you know, I'm just one amongst many. I'm just one amongst a couple of hundred people here, one amongst a few thousand in this church, or one amongst a few million in, in London. Who am I? But there's a power available for you to live in where you can demonstrate the glory of God in the most glorious ways, where life can be radically different because although you find yourself in the same situation, You've got a fresh power to release into that situation. Although you might be dealing with the same difficult relationships between parents, between siblings, between your partner, with your kids, suddenly there's an anointing, a power that comes upon your life to be released into that situation so that transformation starts to happen. Equally, you might consider yourself here today to be God's gift God's gift to the banking world, God's gift to the financial markets, God's gift to your partner, God's gift to your company. If my company didn't have me, you know what, I'm going to ask them for a raise. If they don't give me that raise, I'm going to go and turn the other company into a billionaire company. Or if, if I didn't work out here, if I didn't train here, if I didn't keep my role here in my family, well, you know, they just wouldn't know where they're at. I'm God's gift. But you see, the power that God gives us is not designed to make you look good or great. In fact, the power of God rests upon somebody who's been blinded like Paul. 
See, Paul was blinded to his own agenda. His own agenda was to go about killing Christians. He knew, he felt like he knew, exactly what he was supposed to be doing. But suddenly God arrested him and blinded his eyes. And he became aware when he opened his eyes again that there was a different life for him to live. This power, what is it? Why should I have it? How do I meaningfully step into it today. I'm going to explore four positions with you. A new purity, a new identity, a new disposition, and a new power. Now, if we think about Paul, I wonder if you think about people that you respect. If you were to think about someone that you respect, you might not agree with everything they say, but you'd look at what they've accomplished in life and say, you know what, that person's made it. I don't know if you were to think of a basketball player, if you were to think about a politician, or if you think about a, a professor, if you were to think about a scientist, or you were to think about uh, Warren Buffett or someone like him. You look up at them and say, you know what, they've reached the pinnacle, they've done something with their life. Paul could say something similar about himself. He said, you know what, um, I've got confidence in the flesh. You know, I've uh, been circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, perfect in the law, zealous in the persecution of the church, righteous under the law, and blameless. Him at the peak of his religion might for many people be an example. But I want to question the role he's playing up until this point. And you might be saying, well, why are you questioning a man who's obviously reached the height of his success? Well, because all of us need to be questioned. And perhaps we can learn something from Paul, who so many of us think is a man that's on a different level to all of us, yet perhaps he has something to offer us today, both men and women here in the house this afternoon. First, we're authorized to look into Paul's life because God himself announces that through his, through his word that Paul needed a new commission. He needed to become an ambassador of God to the Gentiles because the life that he'd been living as a Pharisee wasn't sufficient before God. There was something incomplete in the plan of God for his life. I don't know if you're thinking that you're on the path that God has for you. Maybe you're thinking, you know, my career trajectory is this way, and if I make it, I have arrived. But what if God were to interrupt? What if God were to say, pause? No promotion for you. No profit and loss account for you. No new product for you. No new branch for you. No new status title for you, because I've got a different plan. What if God were to do that? Second reason we can look at Paul's life critically is this, is that Jesus, when he walked around on the earth, was challenging culture. And he challenged a few times the Pharisees specifically. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying to the guys that have reached the pinnacle, you've not got it yet. You've not fully understood who God is because the God who Paul was demonstrating through his lifestyle was an angry God full of hate. And yet God says, go and find out what mercy is. Go find out what it is to understand my Father's heart. And so we find this Paul with a twisted view of God seeking to serve that God out of the law. And this manifests with him wanting to drag off and persecute the Christians, even killing some. He's there when Stephen dies. He's powered by a hatred for that which opposes the God that he thinks he's serving. He got it wrong. He'd misunderstood God. And he was living his whole life out on the overflow of that knowledge. God is angry. I'm going to go and punish people on his behalf. I'm going to go and extract righteousness by removing these unsavory 
components, these people who call themselves Christians, these people who have started to talk about the goodness of God, the forgiveness that comes in Christ, the fact that we can be reconciled with God. No, 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 no. They're, They're diluting the word. They're diluting who God is. Let's extract them out. And he had such moral authority, and he believed that he had the right to go and do this on behalf of his God. Now, I don't know how many of you find yourselves motivated by God in heaven. But you're certainly motivated by some form of a God. Maybe it's the God of monies. Maybe it's the God of power. Maybe it's the God of lust. Maybe it's the God of security. Maybe it's the God... And we're taking all of the actions that we're taking because of our certainty about that. The God of self was the one I was fishing for just then in my brain. The God of self. You might not know what it looks like to worship the God of self, but have you ever been so sure about something? Have you ever been so sure that you are going to fight until the bitter end? All of us know what it is to be serving the God of self when we get into an argument. Because I'm going to win this argument if it takes everything within me, I'm going to win it. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, but you're wrong. You're wrong. No, 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 you're wrong. And you're even worse because you did it for this reason. No, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. And we start to get into all of these Star Wars arguments. All of you looking like you don't have arguments. And what begins to happen is that self-obsession leaks out. No, no, I'm going to defend myself. I'm not going to be cheated again. I'm not going to allow someone to walk over me again. I'm not going to allow you to have your way because I'm tired of you having your way. I've got to have my way sometimes because last I counted, we had your way eight times and mine only seven. I need to make sure that I get up to 50 before I can let you have your way again. We start to assert ourselves. We start to operate out of a power that is not Christ-centered, that is self-centered, that is self-assertive, I'm going to punish you with my emotional detachment, with my intellectual superiority, with my greater zeal and louder voice, I'm going to make sure that I win this argument. And that's the base level of what it's like to live like Paul. Paul was so sure that he'd got it right, and he was going in one specific direction But the God that he was serving was not the God of the Bible, not the God who would empower him later on to demonstrate signs and wonders that were manifested out of love. I know a little bit about this because I'm wrestling with this personally all of the time. For a season, I decided that um, I would have to push myself to the edge of my own capacities because it's only there that I would really realize that I needed God. So I know I can do stuff. I don't know how many people in the place are self-reliant. You don't need help. You don't need people to come alongside. You don't need uh, people to encourage. You don't need people to give you wisdom. You got it. You got it under control. And you're going to be the one to do it. You're going to be the one to finish it. And it's all going to be for you and your credit. And I'm wrestling with, that's not very Christ-like. I want Christ to be involved. So what do I do? I'll work right up to 100% capacity, and then Christ will have to help me with the rest. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Except that Christ isn't involved in the 1 to 100%. Christ only gets involved when I hit 100%. So 1 to 100% is me. 100% on is God. And what happens in that cycle for me is this that I'll work up to a certain point and hit a wall and then just have to sit down. Maybe because I've burnt out my physical energy. Maybe because I've burnt out my mental energy. Maybe I just haven't had enough sleep and I just don't have it in me to be Christ-like right now. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to shut up. And I'll reflect in that time, whether it's on a sickbed, whether it's uh, reading 
the Bible, whatever it might be, I'll, I'll, rest, I'll reflect and I'll be like, Jesus, I need more of you in my life. And Jesus is like, yeah, you can have as much as you want. Surrender the one to 100%. No, 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 but God, I, need, I can do that. I just need you to get involved when I can't do any more. No, no, no. Surrender the one to 100%. Unless you surrender the one to 100%, unplug from your own skill, and plug into the life of Christ, you're just going to keep doing things on your own, and you're going to hit this cycle, and every three to six months, you're going to have a blowout. Is that the life you want to live? Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can't. I don't know how many of you have uh, transitioned this into learning how to rely on Christ in every area of your life to plug into His power. But it's there for us to plug into his power. You see, Paul is on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians. And a bright light shines, stops him right where he's at. Is this an angry God? Is this an angry God who's come to strike him down? No. Is this an overpowering God? You have no choice but to follow me, Paul. No. Is it a glorious light? Is it somebody that Paul feels that he can talk to? Who are you, Lord? Is it somebody that Paul can follow? Yes, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. And walks into Damascus. See, because in this moment when Jesus said to him, Paul, Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What he was saying to Paul was, you are consistently going against your conscience and trying to manifest a power that does not glorify me. You think you're serving me, but you're really not. And in a position where he's blinded, he spends time thinking. Sometimes we need to come to a place where we too become intensely aware of our shortcoming through our failure. I don't know how many of you find yourself today in a place of failure where you just say, I've uh, done it again, God. I've messed up. Whether you slip back into drugs, you slip back into alcohol, you slip back into pornography, you started cheating on your partner again, you started stealing money, you started ripping off your family. If you're in that place, you are the perfect candidate to unplug from the power of sin and to plug into the life in Christ. So Paul blinded came to an understanding that as powerful as he was, as much backing as he had, as much as people feared him, he wasn't operating in true power. Because that which was more powerful than him came to show him. He didn't come to force him. Jesus didn't come to force Paul. He said, come and I will show you. And so Paul chose to leave beside his, aside his former ways in those three days when he's blinded, and God led him on a tr- path towards true power, a place of genuine connection. So the four stages, new purity. Paul's first action with uh, Ananias, directed by God because God sent Ananias, was to become a disciple. Now, it's important you pay attention here because I know many of you have done something powerful and profound. You've stood up, you've put your hand up in a service, you've said to a friend, I am now a Christian. I have put my faith in Jesus. And that's commendable. But that without this means that you have made a declaration of faith but not become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what is this that I'm talking about? Paul, while he's sitting there blinded, along comes this scared out of his mind disciple who any one of us could identify with. (laughs) How many of you think about talking to your father or your mother or your brother or your sister about the fact that you've become a Christian and you're shaking in your boots? 
And I don't want to get into the arguments again. And I don't want them to call me a freak. I don't want them to cut me off from my family. I need my family. And you might be saying, you know, Jesus, don't make me. Don't make me do this. But along comes Ananias being obedient to God. And he lays his hands on Paul. And the Paul who had made a declaration of faith the moment he called Jesus Lord and was obedient to his command to go to Damascus. That same Paul receives the Holy Spirit and gets up and gets baptized. Some of you here today have not been water baptized. Let me encourage you as soon as possible, you need to get water baptized. Baptism is the thing you do on day one, not year 25. Baptism is the thing that you do to step into the life that Christ has called us to live. Baptism is the thing that causes us to leave behind the old and step into the new. Baptism at the point of conversion is integral with the cleansing and receiving of a new nature as we repent and believe and are water baptized. Your new purity. What does that mean? It means that in the action of receiving Christ's forgiveness and leaving behind the old, we are so cleansed as if to be made new. I don't know uh, how you will feel about the first time you scratch something. First time I scratched my bike, I was like, oh, Jesus. My motorbike, that is. I still dream about it, even though it got stolen five years ago. But that first scratch... It's never going to be the same again. Or maybe your shoes, the first scuff on your shoe, the first tear in your dress, the first time that the nice weave that you've had put in starts to fray. Ouch. Suddenly it ain't so new anymore. Suddenly it's not so pure anymore. You know, my wife laughs at me because every time I sit down to dinner, I take the uh, napkin, I tuck it into my collar here. I don't put it on my knees, I put it in my collar here. And everyone's laughing at me. They're like, how's your bib, Gabriel? You're like, you should have stopped wearing that 30 years ago. I'm like, <laughs> I'll still be wearing this shirt tomorrow because I'm wearing this handkerchief today because I spill food everywhere. <laughs> but it just doesn't feel so new anymore. But when we receive Christ and join with him in baptism, participate in his death and in his life, death as we enter the waters, life as we're brought out of the waters, you are made new. So new before God that he considers that you are wearing robes of righteousness worthy of heaven. You can't, as hard as you try, make a mark on. Why? Because they're washed by the blood of the Lamb. Because Jesus' blood cleanses you more powerfully than you are able to sin. A new purity. I think of my friend who had gone their whole life thinking they knew God. They had been raised in a Christian family. They had gone to church and Sunday school and cried at how bored they were. And cried with laughter at how silly the people at the front looked in their dresses or looked when they were trying to tell cool stories. My friend who, when they had cancer, got on their knees and cried out to the God that they never served any other day of their life. They just got down on their knees and said, God, I need you to heal me. The same friend who got healed and didn't follow God. But then the day that they came and said, I want to follow Jesus and got baptized, suddenly something happened in their life and they had gone from disinterested, disconnected, unintentional, not God-honoring person to suddenly living on fire for Jesus. Why? Because they united with Christ. They made a decision that they wanted to walk with Him. Some of us need to take that step. And you're looking at your life and saying, this is a boring Christian life. That's huge because you need to start moving with God. Get baptized, get spirit-filled, start to live a life of fire with Him. 
The second, the new identity, the new spirit that came upon Paul. See, he received an anointing from God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to live on the inside of him like he's come to live on the inside of every one of you who've had a baptism experience with the Holy Spirit who begins to bring forth a new identity, the spirit that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, the spirit that causes us to know that we are a son of God, the spirit that is a seal on us so that we can know for sure that we will go to heaven with God in Christ. Christ. See, Paul received that same Holy Spirit, and he got up, his eyes now open, his power source now changed from himself to his God, and he gets out there and he says, I want to tell you about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus lived. He died. He rose again. Jesus, as the risen Christ, now lives ever to make intercession for you and me so that we might be brought up, caught up in the plan of God for our life to live a new, powerful life in him on the earth, and then for him when we get to heaven. It's that new spirit that lives on the inside of you. How many of you know you've got that new spirit living on the inside of you? Okay, maybe we need to go to a Pentecostal church and ask the people there about that. See, the new spirit changes something. Isaiah, we can see the example of Isaiah's life. He's standing in the presence of God in Isaiah 6. He's looking at God. He's saying, oh my goodness me. This temple is filled with his glory. And woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And at that point, an angel takes a a coal from the altar touches his mouth and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And that man, Isaiah, went on to live a prophetic life that called out who Jesus was going to be, his character, his qualities, his death as a servant on the cross. Isaiah suddenly tapped into a new power. How many of us feel like we're people of unclean lips? How many of us know that when we're in church, we're like, let me make sure I don't swear. (laughs) But when we're outside, it's rolling. (laughs) But there's something that happens when the Spirit of God dwells inside of you. You see, dries up that desire to blaspheme, that desire to call out the name of Jesus and it not be a prayer that desire to swear and lambast people because we want to put them down, it dries it up and instead brings forth a new river, a river of life, words of life. I remember before I became a Christian that I couldn't help it. Every three words was the F-bomb. Every three words. And suddenly just dries it up on the inside. And now like, if, if I swear, this is not through effort. You know, it was easy for me to swear, Right? But if I swear, I'm like, whoa, that is not me. What is going on? It's so different to who the Spirit of God has made me. And it's a promise of the Spirit that is available for every one of us. Jesus said, you will receive power. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, what do we need to do to be saved? You need to repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a promise. However hard you might think you are, however tough you might think you are, I think of my friend who I prayed for, and he received the Holy Spirit. He was speaking in tongues, and I knew that he needed the Holy Spirit because I knew I might not see him for a few more years. He'd just come back into my life for an evening saying, Gabriel, I need you to pray for me. And I prayed for him to receive the Holy Spirit. And later on, he told me that the reason he came to see me is because he'd been caught for drug dealing. He'd had to commit to, admit to his wife he'd been having an affair, and he'd just got kicked out of work because of sexual harassment. I mean, so he's, he's not only uh, cheating on his wife, he's also abusing another woman, and he's also abusing and destroying lives through drugs. So he's a pretty bad guy. But the Holy Spirit comes straight. The Holy Spirit, boom! In a couple of seconds of prayer, the Holy Spirit's like, this guy, (laughs) this guy needs me in his life. And that same guy, he went to prison for what he was doing. But in prison, he leads 12 guys to follow Christ. He comes out of prison, gets reconciled with his wife. Starts leading a small group at the church that he's in because the Holy Spirit did something fresh in his life. 
got a new disposition. Paul taught us to pray that we would be strengthened in our inner being, that Christ might dwell in our hearts, that we might be grounded in his love, and that we might grow into maturity in knowing what his love is. A love that surpasses knowledge, something that will cause us to know the fullness of God. So you know that something's happened in your life. For me, before becoming to Christ, I would punch you for looking at me wrong. <laughs> Some of you, <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. Um, but suddenly God started to change something in my heart. Boom, a new disposition, a new desire to love people, and it's been a long journey for me. I don't know, some of you, maybe it might have been an easier journey to loving people. Maybe you were born with a gentle heart. But loving people is a fresh perspective on life. See, I believe that if we all learn how to love people, that's the height of our creation purpose. We're called to represent God in the community. And you know, we had, just to pause for a real quick second, I was having an interesting discussion at this wedding yesterday with a guy um, who was interested in Christ, but he was more interested in us creating artificial intelligence that would create other computers and so on, and, and us as human beings creating something that was greater than us, and that being our crowning glory, and I was like, dude, you've missed it. Us creating something else is not our crowning glory. Us learning to love each other like God is calling us to is our crowning glory. And that's epitomized by that, foot, uh, that football advert of the guys crossing the lines in World War I to play football on Christmas Day. It's like the guy, I don't know if you've seen the clip, where he bows down to tie the shoelace of the goalkeeper on the other team. It's learning to live what we're made for. One people under God. Multiple cultures, multiple different races, multiple ages, both the genders, but learning to love God. That's our greatest purpose. And all of us have those things. We have been baptized or need to be ASAP. We have the new spirit. We have that call from God in us to become a people that love. And essentially, that is our new freedom. But some of us can have all that and still know exactly what Paul means when he says, that which I don't want to do, I do. And you might be saying to yourself, why? You know, this Christian life is impossible. You know, they tell me this, they tell me that, I've, you know, and I've been trying to do these things, and I still get exactly what Paul was talking about. In the same discussion with this guy, I was saying to him, listen, um, I believe as Christians we're called to walk in sexual purity. And I really wish that we talked about this all the time because every day there's eye bombardment for the guys and girls, there's thought bombardment concerning the area of sex every single day. And I was saying to him, listen, we're called to walk in sexual purity. He's like, yeah, but I've talked to Christians who are living together, sleeping together, not yet married. And they're completely okay with it. Let me just say to you real clear, the Bible's not okay with it. And it's not because of a restriction. It's not to stop you enjoying sex. See, you can see sex as a gift, sex as gross, or sex as God. And if you feel that sex is your God, you will do whatever it takes to get that. Oh, you know, if I need to tell a girl that I love her and she'll give me sex, well, I'll tell her that I love her. You mean I can get it before I propose? Wow. You mean I can move in without having to pay for a ring? Wow. I'll do that. Oh, you mean, you mean if I sleep with a guy, he'll tell me he loves me? Oh, you mean if I move in with him, then we'll have some sort of a committed relationship and he'll have to give me a ring one day. Sex is God. Too many Christians think of sex as gross. Oh, you can't do this, can't do that, can't do the other, da, da. you know, shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be doing that. But within the context of a covenant commitment in front of people, in front of God, and in front of the law of marriage, sex is the greatest gift. And when you reserve it for that place of marriage, the 
trust that you have between husband and wife, the faith that you have in one another, and the unity that comes just shows you why everything else is just a charade. Everything else is like you go to Hong Kong, you can get gray imports, fakes. Everything else fails to give what we all hunger and yearn for. Now that's the standard. And most of us know the standard, but we don't have the power to live the standard. We say, God, you know what? I know that's a good thing, but when we're together in the same place, you know, things just, electricity's flying. Or when I'm on the internet, you know, I just can't help myself. I want to shut the internet down, but I just cannot help myself. And I'm talking about this because this is the area where every one of us can relate to about which power we're operating out of. This is the one area where we know that we don't have the strength to overcome. But we do. But we do. See, because you're no longer a slave of sin. You are given to be a son and daughter of God. And the same spirit that is in you that has brought about a new identity is the same spirit that empowers you to live a free life. See, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What's the distinction? Jesus, I can't do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was so happy to see one of my former cell members. He's just moved cell because it's more simple for him in terms of where he lives now. He's like, Gabriel, I'm so happy. I was like, why? He goes, because I've quit smoking. Now, it's not that you have to quit smoking to be righteous. You have to quit drinking to be righteous. You know, God's doing his thing at his own time. But for this guy, this was the big thing. And he just couldn't beat it. He's like, God, I need to. I can't. God, I need to. I can't. I was like, what changed? He goes, I did what you said. I stopped trying. I was like, what do you mean you stopped trying? He's like, I was like, I was doing the tests, I was doing the patches, I was doing the, the uh, electric cigarettes, I was doing the chewing gum, I was doing the spray, I was doing everything else to try to get off the smoking. And I just instead started to wake up every day and say, God, I can't do it. You can do it through me. I'm going to walk with you. And when he was walking and the cigarettes are there by the side in the shop, and the Holy Spirit, you don't need those. And when he sees the advert, he's like, wow, I can be like Marlborough Man. I don't need it. Because the Holy Spirit began to strengthen him on the inside. See, you got the new power within you. You've got everything you need within you. Christ has placed it within you when he put his spirit on the inside of you. Start to walk in the spirit. See, the devil tried to trick you by saying, you've received all this Christian, but you're still like Paul because you're still in the flesh. But Jesus says, if you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you are permanently in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means you don't submit. You don't give in. You don't give in to sin. Just quickly on the sexual temptation thing that we're talking about, the way the Bible says to deal with that is run. You see something going on? Things are getting a little bit hot at home? You get up. You put your wallet in your pocket, your phone in your pocket, so you can't say, oh, I forgot my wallet. I had to come back. And then you run, right? That's, that's walking in the anointing on that one. But walking in the power is like, God, I'm not a slave to this. I'm a slave to you. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I'm going to walk in righteousness. Unplug from that self-power. I'm practicing that personally. Unplugging from that reliance on me. Okay, I've got to do this, 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 this today. Lord, I'm going to do this with you. Help me achieve everything that I need to achieve. Guide my purpose. Guide my priorities I want to do what you want me to do today. 
Every one of us have been called to live in this place where we can live from an effortless momentum that Paul describes in Philippians 4 verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want to challenge you this morning, afternoon. You want to live for Jesus? You can. You want to serve Him with your life? You can. Please stop being the defeated Christian that sits there condemning guilt, shame. I can't do it. Let me just stay in my seat. And if I feel holy enough, maybe I might go to church. But rather stand up. Stand strong. Walk in the power that God has placed in you. Doesn't mean you need to become the person on the platform, but what it does mean is you need to walk in power through your life. See, it's not about the status, it's about the demonstration of God's life in you. If you can love people well, if you can serve people, if when there's a chance for you to assert yourself instead, you choose to serve somebody else. Doesn't mean you become a walkover, doesn't mean you get abused. Okay, don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying you get slapped on one cheek and you turn the other cheek. Oh, I'm a slimming Christian. <laughs> no, I'm saying walk in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of love, the Spirit of grace, the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit that calls us to glorify God. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this time here together today. And Lord, we know, Father, that there is a life out there for us ordinary people, people with nothing in our pockets, with skills that don't earn us hundreds of thousands of pounds, with simple lives that might have fear in them, that might have disconnection in them. We want to be a people that learn to plug into the power of the Spirit of God. We want to be a people that learn how to really live this Christian life. Jesus, we're tired of the fakeness that we feel when we identify with Paul. We know what we want to do, but we don't do it. That which we don't want to do, we do. And we feel conflicted and torn apart on the inside. Yet, Lord, we really, really want to live for you and your glory. And so, Father, I ask today, Lord, that you would enable us to understand the power you've already placed within us. The Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would partner with you every day of our life and that the quality would start to show as relationships are made whole, as impossible situations align to the will of God, as situations that had died and were lost get resurrected in a way that would bring you glory. Enable us to be a people that live this Christian life with integrity and that it demonstrates here in the house but those that sit on opposite sides of the church because they don't like each other would reconcile. The old would serve young and young would honor old. The man would esteem woman and woman would know their value in the house and equally would be free to honor and respect the men. We pray, Father, that you'd start to do something radical in this house as we individually plug into your power. In Jesus' name, amen.